Fostering resilience is about learning from our setbacks and using that and stepping forward, both to inspire others by our own stories and also to create resilient cultures when the going gets rough. You're listening to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast with professional speaker, coach, and consultant, Nicole Greer. Welcome, everybody, to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. My name is Nicole Greer, and they call me the Vibrant Coach, and I am here with the author of Arrive and Thrive. Her name is Susan Brady, and Susan is the Deloitte Ellen Gabriel Chair for Women in Leadership at Simmons University and the first Chief Executive Officer of the Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership. I am absolutely beyond thrilled to have her here today. Susan has published two books previously on leadership, and her third was co-authored by Executive Chair of the Board of Deloitte U.S., Janet Foudy, and Simmons University President Dr. Lynn Perry Wooten. Arrive and Thrive is all about seven impactful practices for women navigating leadership. It debuted in April 2022 and, of course, landed on the bestseller list in the Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and USA Today. Not only does Susan sit around writing all day long and cheering all these things, she also serves as the Emeritus Board Member of Strong Women, Strong Girls, and as a Strategic Advisor for the Relationship Technology Company, Our.Love. Susan resides in the Boston area and is the proud mom of two awesome daughters. Oh, I want to hear about them. Oh, and these two, the two rambunctious Portuguese water dogs. Welcome to the show, Susan. Oh, thanks for having me, Nicole. Really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so tell us about your two sweet baby girls. Let's hear about them first. (laughs) The most important thing on the whole show. Let's hear about them. Uh, It is the most important thing on the whole whole show. I agree. Uh, So (laughs) Caroline McIntyre Brady is, uh, they're both turning a a significant age this coming week. They're both Labor Day babies. So uh, Caroline. No way. Funny. Yep. Um, and she is uh, a sophomore at a small liberal arts college in Ohio called Kenyon College. Very proud of her there. And um, I think working her way to thriving. Um, Abby Abigail Parker Brady is going to be 17 next week and starting her junior year in high school and, you know, living living her best life. So they are my greatest teachers yeah, I bet. I, and it's it's fun every stage of the game, right? Like when they were babies, it was fun. When, when they were eight, it was fun. Now that they're teenagers and young adult ladies, oh my gosh, so much fun. I have a 23-year-old. Her name's Caitlin Greer, and she's at, uh, she's at the University of Lynchburg, and she is going to become a physician, excuse me, a physical therapist. And so I'm I'm all excited about this because in my old age, she'll be able to help me walk around and get my act together. So I'm very excited. Isn't it fun with these girls grow up, do amazing things? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. It's, it's, it's awesome. And it's navigating um, teenagehood is also a, an act of patience, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, people are always like, would you like to go back? And I'm like, no, no, thank you. I'll stay right here where I am. I love where I am. So I think it's interesting for sure. All right. Well, you are all about the girls. And that is an exciting thing. Are the are the water dogs girls or are they boy dogs? Yeah, I've got one one boy. We've got one boy, one girl, Charlie and Piper. And Portuguese water dogs Aww. are full of energy and full of life and, you know, need exercise and just all sorts of personality. They keep they actually keep me on my toes. <laughs> 
That's good. Yeah. Cause you have to go for walks, you know, and that's good. That's good. We get a dog. It's almost like a built-in, you know, physical get your 10,000 steps in a day thing. So that's good. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'm delighted to have you on the show and boy, the word inclusive is hot out there. Everybody's talking about DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I've got myself an expert. So first of all, I'd like to hear from you. What's your definition of leadership? Number one, and then would you add to it the piece of about being inclusive? Will you clue us in? Let us know what all this means? Well, I have to confess, I think leadership and inclusive leadership, it's a little bit of an oxymoron. So in order, okay. yeah, so so leadership, simply put, I think is, is uh, creating an environment where people want to join you on uh, a mission to manifest something that doesn't yet exist. And uh, it's very much a choice. And in order to do that, I think the most effective leaders, you know, need to make space where everyone can bring their unique self and feel of value and feel belonging. And so the act of creating inclusion enables effective uh, leadership. Mm. Do you see that? I love what you're talking about. I'm, I couldn't poke a hole in it if I tried to. So what I heard you say was that the part about being inclusive is almost like kind of uh, the recipe for getting the folks behind you to actually get in lockstep with you. That's kind of what I heard. Did I get it right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we haven't had the consciousness to notice some people because of our identity and we just haven't noticed. So I don't, I don't see it as a willful, you know, overlooking of others. I think nowadays leaders need to be consciously seeking out different voices, different, different, different identities, uh, people who might have different points of view and really valuing what they see and asking everybody to come in. And then we start to get things like discretionary effort and, you know, we start to have fun with each other at work and we start to, you know, manifest great things because people feel like they're valued. Yeah, absolutely. And so I got to just poke on a word, uh, phrase you said, you said discretionary effort. And that is where great companies come alive. Great things start to happen is when people give you more than the 100%. You know how people say, I give 110%. Well, the 10% is the discretionary percent. So I, I think that's fantastic. And, and, and I think there are a lot of people who would be willing to do that if they were heard seen and recognized inside organizations. So I couldn't agree with you more. That's fantastic. All right. So I wanted to spend our time together talking about the new book, because first of all, we want to make sure that the ladies that are out there in our organizations are uh, doing well. And so you've written a book entirely for them called Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. So would it be good if we jumped into that? I see it's over your shoulder there in the back. Background. Are you so happy about your new book? I am. You know, I am. Um, I'm. I am very grateful to have had the opportunity to co-create this project, which is sort of turning into a, a movement, the Arrive and Thrive movement. Uh, your listeners can find out more about Arrive and Thrive on ArriveandThrive.com. Uh, look, the seven practices, Nicole, they're really for everyone. The context, though, is that too often our work cultures encourage women you know, to get our foot in the door only to leave us without the support once once we really step in. And so we wrote Arrive and Thrive to change that uh, because we know when women are empowered to lead, they aren't the only ones to benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So what she just said is you fellas that are listening, don't 
turn it off. Listen, these are for you too. That's totally what I, what I meant to say just now is don't rule this out because it's just for women. Women listen up hard. Men listen up harder. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, in the book, like the title says, there are seven practices and I think all of these are fantastic. So let's see if we can hit them all. The first one is practice number one, investing in your best self, lead from the best part of yourself and ensure you tend to your mind, body and spirit for continual renewal. Mm. All right. So every yeah, you're right. Everybody needs this. So listen up, people. Yeah. Uh, so the way we define best self is where your strengths and talents come together with where you're called to add value to others, which comes together with what ignites joy and vitality in you. And then your the surround of these things is is your well-being practices. And when we've got all that going on, you know, we've got a good chance of thriving. And uh, so the idea is that this can be sometimes effortless. You know, it's where we lose track of time and think, oh my gosh, I was just really, really in my zone, in my jam. And then it doesn't feel great when we, when we're not in our best self. So the, the more we know our best self, uh, the harder it is when we're not there. And so uh, this practice is about really fully understanding you at your best and then learning a practice to return to you at your best. Mm, all right. Well, I'm curious, how do you return to your best? What is the practice for that? Can you tell it to us? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, well, the first step of the practice is noticing when you're not there, right? So, uh, right. and oftentimes it happens first in our own mind because what we think and feel drives what we say and do. And so it's likely going to appear in some sort of um, maybe harsh words or uh, feeling mm. that's uncomfortable, either annoyance, overwhelm, fatigue, anger, frustration, you know, that not great. We don't, we don't feel, we don't feel so great. Um, and so noticing is first. And the second is sort of taking a look at and taking a pause uh, about, you know, why, and then the return to the best self is a combination of getting curious with yourself and others, and also compassionate with yourself and others. So it's really a return to a place where I bring my best, you bring your best. Typically we lose um, ourselves, not because of something that we necessarily asked for, but because we find something we find ourselves contending with, like a de hard deadline on a project or a difficult person who said something that rubbed us the wrong way, or, you know, maybe we weren't able to get a good night's sleep, right? So the first step is really about consciousness. It's about being aware uh, so that we don't say and do things that we regret. So the return is first and foremost about awareness. And then we offer a practice in the book called the self, uh, the best self-centering practice. Awareness is the first step of that practice. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And then you said when you were talking about the return, you said you'll know uh, because there's kind of this inner critic talking to you. And I know, don't you have another book on the inner critic? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. it's so funny. Um, yeah. Th this is sort of a, the next generation of certainly my experience and thinking and research on the inner critic and how it shows up. Uh, I think it robs us of our best self, right? And so you have an inner critic. I have an inner critic. Oh, I think the whole world has an inner critic. I mean, if you don't, if you you could make a million laying us all know how you figured that one out. Well, right. My, my joke. <laughs> so, so, so true, right? My joke with, um, with men is, you know, we all have inner critics, men and women alike, every identity. I, I just think women need to talk about it more. We need to talk about ours. And then, the, you know, going back to the purpose of why Arrive and Thrive is actually 
uh, sort of packaged for women, the context for us is more complicated. And I think, you know, that creates a lot more opportunity to feel like we're not quite getting it right. It also creates opportunity for us to feel like we're working really hard here. Why can't the other people pull their weight? Or why is he still talking? Or why didn't she do what she was supposed to do, right? Because uh, so the, the critic has fair play at ourself and, and others, but it, it, it definitely, I think, is a primarily de primary derailer uh, to leading our life from our best self. Yeah, absolutely. And so just to reiterate what she was saying about the best self, it's where our talents, uh, the place we're asked to contribute and where joy and vitality hang out and our wellness is circled around that. So I've got that whole thing locked and loaded and a little visual in my brain. I hope you all picked it up. All right. So uh, number one is that we've got to work on our well-being and, and get in touch with who we are at our best self and know when we're derailed. Um, I don't know if you ever heard this one before, Susan, but I was taught this. I don't know where I was taught this. This has like been rolling around in my pocket for years. But somebody said, um, if you're hungry, you're angry, you're lonely, or you're tired, which were kind of the words you were using uh, when we're not at our best self, um, you need to halt. And so I think that's what she's saying about pause, figure it out, get yourself back. So you definitely need chapter one, at least folks, uh, so that you can get yourself in your best self place. All right. So we're, let's say we've figured out who our best self is. We've learned some practices to return to our best self. Now, practice number two is embracing our authenticity, bringing our whole self to work with intention and ease. I really like the word ease on the back end there. So that means like no anxiety, no issues, just bring it. So tell us all about embracing authenticity. Right. So I think, uh, you know, the, the notion that your competitive advantage is you, right? What makes you you? What makes you unique? What makes you have the particular skills and talents that others value and that you value and that bring you joy is actually really special. And so we don't want you to feel like you can't be you. Um, the other part of this practice is I think there's a growing intolerance to inauthenticity at work and it's certainly inauthenticity among leadership. So we want to be greeted by our leaders as humans and we want to be seen as human beings. And so to do this, we need to double down on, on being honest with ourselves and others, being transparent. I just, um, when I use the word transparent, I get a little bit cautious because I know some people work in contexts where it's not safe for them to be fully transparent or it's not appropriate. And so there's a lot of judiciousness that needs to go along with how we show up authentic authentically uh, at work. It doesn't mean I can be unabashedly myself in any environment and think that that's going to be you know, contextually okay. So it's really kind of grounding ourselves in our genuine selves and showing up in a way that feels right for the context that we're in. Yeah. And, and that best self part too. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, I've been around people who have, who have said, well, you know, I'm just blunt. That's the way I am. So like, no, that's still not okay. You can't be, that's not your authentic self. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that. One of the, one of the oh. things I've been a little bit allergic to on the whole, um, you know, authenticity movement is I, oh. I agree with you. I think sometimes people use it as a rationale for behaving in ways that frankly aren't really great. You know, right. So I, I don't think that's authenticity. I think that's defending behavior that is potentially harmful to others. So uh, so we go through a little bit of that. The other thing that was interesting about the research we did for this chapter is, you know, authenticity. I guess I thought like 
not that we're, we'd stop growing, but I did think something about our authentic self is sort of a fixed state. Like we are, we are who we are. And if you met me in high school and if you met me, you know, 10 years later and now you might think, you know, Susan is who Susan is. While I think some of that is true, I also think we grow and change and our values grow Absolutely. and change. So in the authenticity chapter, we offer a values exercise. And uh, to think that as we mature and as our context of our life, as our children, as our girls grow older and go to school and then launch independently as, you know, we have pets or not, as we work full time or for ourselves or others or not, our own values are how we think about what is authentically most important to us will morph as well, right? So staying in touch with, I think, and paying attention to that for ourselves and for others is, is a really important work. Yeah. 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 One of the things I do in my coaching practice is I will talk to people about um, like points of light. Like if you go, you know, start as soon as you can have a memory until today, you know, what, what were the little like aha moments or little bright spots in your journey? And I think that's where you pick up on who your authentic self is. Um, You know, like in my own life, Nicole Greer, first of all, is a learner. I mean, like, learning's my thing. I'm I'm guessing you're a learner too, mm-hmm. since you hang out at the university and you do all this research. And I, I think that, um, you know, if you just thought about, you know, what are the things that you've always done, always loved? I don't know about you, but I would like line up the Barbies and then my brother's GI Joes and the teddy bears. And, and then I would teach them and then I would go learn some more and then I teach some more. So then teacher is part of my thing. So um, I think it's just figuring out all of those things um, is really important. And I want to repeat a quote she said, because you all need to write it down. Stop the treadmill, pull the car over. She said, your competitive advantage is you, as long as you know what that competitive advantage is, right? So again, going back to your best self, I love it. Yeah, I credit that part of that quote to one of the thrivers we feature in the book, Carla Harris, who has has written several books. Her latest is um, Lead to Win. And I think the most important thing is taking it upon yourself to really understand who you are is the ticket to how to lead and and arrive and thrive in a way that feels you know that that emphasizes your vitality that contributes to your to your livelihood which leads us to practice three (laughs) okay right right so to be yourself right well because i think too you know as we're coming up you know um again that part where you said like as you as you get older as you mature as you go through things you're going to change and you're going to grow well at first we're like how do we do this and we look to somebody else to emulate but then at some point you know you're picking up tips from different leaders around you or tips of not what what not to do from leaders around you and then you're like when i become a leader this is what i'm gonna do right so i think we learn all the way through our little leadership journey but then this cultivating courage i love you say that means to commit to action alongside acknowledging and overcoming your fear of doing so Mm. all right talk about courage so huge I think, first of all, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the presence of vulnerability. And if we uh, don't take risks, we oftentimes don't manifest our full potential. And so risk-taking takes courage. And risk-taking can be interpersonal. It can be speaking from the heart. Uh, It can be big actions like jumping into a new job or, um, you know, a, a promotion at work. And I think the research, you know, sort of did not hold that women are less courageous than men. Uh, We are more calculating in our risk taking. That's what we found. And I think that 
we can borrow courage, we can borrow confidence when we're doing something that scares us. Um, the other thing that I love, which is, I'd say is one of the mainstays for the entire book, is we're just not meant to go it alone. Nicole, you know this, you've coached people for a long time. And I, I think those leaders who really look to others to help round out what they can't see are the ones that really rise to the top. You know, there's no reason why we should know how to do something we've never done. So it will feel scary-ish if you haven't done it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's this practice of feeling a little vulnerable and knowing it's going to be okay and leaning on others along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Getting your social network in there to help you. What was the gal who was the COO at Facebook? Cheryl Sandberg. Oh, 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 at Facebook, Cheryl Sandberg. Okay. So there's a story I read. I just read, you know, like you're probably like me because we're both learners, everybody. So um, I just read, I just read this article about, um, I was reading about HR stuff and I'm scanning things. And then there's this thing about a story about Cheryl Sandberg and she was talking to the HR director at Facebook and um, she was going to be offered this bigger, better opportunity. And she turned to Cheryl and she said, I don't know. I don't think I'm qualified. And, and she'd already been offered the position. And Cheryl looked at her and said, you've been offered the position. Just take it. You know, like, I mean, there, there wouldn't be a, and she said in the article, there wouldn't be a man on the planet that just wouldn't take it. Because the fact that you were offered it is the permission to take it. You know what I mean? But like you said, women are more like, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> Should I do it? And so she took it and she was very successful. So that that's that's just bubbling up inside of me. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. She was so for, your, for your listening audience, women and women who are listening or watching, if you haven't done something, there's no reason you should know how to do it. It does not mean you won't figure it out just like you figured out how to do everything until this point so we do have to remind ourselves oh okay i just yeah haven't done this particular thing but i i can do it and i'll win at it right so it's this that's where some sort of the replacement narrative comes into best self like okay i got this i got this that's right. That's right. I mean, like who who could learn to, you know, raise two children, two Portuguese water dogs without just trying. So there you go. All right. So the next thing <laughs> we want to see. I'm not perfect at any of it. I just have to. Read <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know any perfect women <laughs> yeah. uh, or men for that point. OK. All right. The next thing is so we've cultivated courage. We're stepping out. We're taking risks. We're still being calculating, but we're like getting on with it. And we want to do this thing where we foster resilience because we realize things could get messy. We could fall down. So you say that fostering resilience is keep up with the pace and intensity while overcoming setbacks and emerging stronger than before. Share with us a little bit about practice number four. Well, I think I've said this before a lot. If you woke up woman, you know, resilience. If you woke up a woman of color, you know, resilience. If you woke up and have any identity that is not reflected in the majority who are in power in your organization or the world for that matter, you know resilience. So at first I, you know, when when Janet and Lynn and I were talking about the topic of resilience, I thought, really, do we have to talk about resilience? I just feel like everyone knows resilience. And what I realized is just how little we really do know resilience, that it's just not talked about that much. And the thing that I learned is when we have a setback, we don't arrive at the place that we left from before. We are catapulted further forward into a wiser, more knowing self. 
The requirement, though, of fostering resilience is doing what you do so naturally and know and love, and that is to learn from our setbacks. And uh, I loved Lynn, my co-author, calls it uh, reflective sense-making. And I've long since thought, and a mentor of mine has said, you know, reflection might be the least discussed, most valuable leadership skill of all time. I agree. It's a practice, right? So uh, fostering resilience is about learning from our setbacks and using that and stepping forward, both to inspire others by our own stories, to double down and believing ourselves. We can call on our resilience stories for courage when we need to practice risk-taking and also to create resilient cultures when the going gets rough and resilient organizations. So I personally just have to share, like I learned a lot diving into this particular practice and writing about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more about being reflective. Uh, One of the things that I'll assign a lot of times to my clients is I want you to, you know, make notes about your day. I want you to keep track of things that happen during the day, during the week, so that we can we can talk about them when we come back together, because you can't walk into this coaching session with nothing to talk about, you know, like I've just had a good week. Well, I bet you there's been ups and downs all week long. And so the only way we can make your leadership stronger is we, if we look at why did, were the ups up and why were the downs down? So I think, um, you know, you tell somebody, I need you to journal and they flip out, but you know, really that is what reflective is. And then I love what your, tell me your, tell me your co-author's name that said this reflective sense-making. Who was yeah, it? Lynn Perry Wooden, Dr. Lynn yeah. Perry writes about reflective sense-making and it's, it's, it's highlighted in the chapter on fostering resilience. You know, just to say, I love, I love that you ask your clients to do that. The best coaching question I ever, I ever got, I learned from the godfather of leadership, um, Warren Bennis, when I was m- much younger and uh, he would ask, you hung out with Warren Bennis. What? I had the, I had the joy and the, the, the honor of working with, with Warren Bennis on uh, a global Institute for leadership development for several years and oh my God. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. He was the chair of the Institute and I uh, was the program director and uh, for a couple of years anyway. And um, anyway, his question he would ask people is, and he asked it of me, is, uh, so what's become clear to you since last time we met? And I love the question because it, it does highlight, okay, what, what, what have I become clear about? And in order to answer it, it required reflection. It required me to sort of notice what's going on. Anyway, I just had to share that. He'd want. Oh, and, and so I'm such a nerd because like, you know, Warren Bennis is like, I don't know, Mick Jagger. In the- <laughs> I know. Love it. Yeah, he, he, he is a rock star in the field <laughs> of leadership. His, his, his book on becoming a leader, you know, changed my whole life. Well, we don't have to go there, but I created, I, I've been a student and, and, and teacher of leadership for a very long time, and he was a formidable leader, and I'm honored to have met him in his lifetime because he, uh, he, Warren can be known, for those people who don't know or listening, he, he's, I credit Warren with being a thought leader who invited leaders to do a pretty internal journey, an introspective journey, to look within in order to ignite without. And coming from a white male at the time who had lofty leadership positions, uh, he he got through 
and I think he started a path of, of more conscious leadership. So I'm um, grateful to him for that. Yeah, I can agree more. Uh, so here, here's what we need to do, everybody. Everybody zip over to the Amazon and get a Warren Bennis book, but don't forget to get Susan's book. All right. <laughs> right. We, you got to gonna have two in the cart, everybody. All right. So I love that. Okay. And so, so what's become clear since the last time we met? All right. I'm putting it in my pocket and I'm taking it to the coaching sessions. Oh, You're amazing in my life. <laughs> All right. And I just want to say one thing about resilience is that I think that um, resilience is is like this thing called willingness. Like, you know, it's like, the, you know, getting a hold of your inner will and bringing it back to the table. But um, once you get your will engaged, then it's just simply like, being open, being creative, thinking about the future. I mean, you know, let's go again. It's a do-over. So um, I don't know about you, but I love do-overs on the on the playground at school, in, in elementary school. All right. Practice number five is inspiring a bold vision. So enroll others in a mission that awakens their spirit. Okay. So I think that's what Warren Bennis was doing. Because look, look how we're like just gaga over this guy. He got our spirits engaged and desire to create a future that does not yet exist. You know, Susan, I said, I've said this on my podcast many times. My dad used to say the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And so I heard that a lot growing up. So I kind of was like, I'm not going to think like that because I heard it all the time that the world was terrible. Um, but really the only reason we don't have a great world is because nobody's thought up the new one and is getting after it. So let's get after a new, a new world, a beautiful, more beautiful future. How do we do that? How do we get a bold vision? You know, this was, it was really fun to create this chapter with my co-authors. We brought, the three of us brought a lot of ideas to the table and then we interviewed some cool people. And here's the essence of what we learned. And and there's some, some interesting practices and some studies cited in the chapter is I think when people think of vision, Nicole, it's like, you, you know, you're sitting alone and like, you know, the skies part and, you know, lightning strikes and all of a sudden, poof, you have this beautiful vision and then you march out and you manifest it. Um, truth be told, vision comes from a lot of lot of conversations. And if in the organizational context for leaders to engage a bold vision, I, I wouldn't want anyone to think they're not a visionary because they personally don't have the idea. And the best place to start is noticing and asking what's working and what's not working. What's working around here? Process, people, systems, you name it. What's not working? Do you have any ideas about what would make it better? What could be more efficient? What could be easier? You find leaders who are asking these kinds of questions, you're finding an invitation to come and give some in, in, you know, input. A vision can manifest from that. you know. And uh, we talk about this in great length in the chapter, how uh, you know, a, a vision is a collaborative effort. It's, it's not a singular sort of, there certainly are visionaries like that. But in terms of inspiring a bold vision, the first step is involve other people in the actual vision itself. And uh, inspiring around it is to involve them in the actual communication of it. So it's, it's not a singular act. No. And, and we know this, and everybody listening knows this, that like, remember when you were younger, you know, we've evolved, we've grown, but even the people on the front line of our organizations are sitting there going, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? What is going on here? If they only knew, you know, so I, I think that, you know, a lot of times your frontline employees are the ones that know exactly where some changes need to be made that could turn turn things into a whole new future. So I love what you're saying about uh, we have to notice, notice, notice 
and involve and get other people to help us communicate the vision. Yeah. Love it. Fantastic. All right. So uh, practice number six is creating a healthy team environment. Okay. This is a big one. We're all doing team building. Why don't things get better? Please tell us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> So her definition here uh, is personify your organization's values, which means walk the talk and walk the walk and all that, and standards while creating an environment that is supportive, collaborative, and healthy. You know, there is so much research on teaming. There are so many books on teaming. There are many experts on teamwork and leading teams and managing teams and effective teams, you know, this particular chapter, I loved um, collaborating on this because it's the only chapter where we decided to come up with our own rubric. And what I mean by that, because there's so much information and research and practice of team leadership, uh, we just looked for a distillation of what matters most. And we came up with six actions. The last of I'll speak about here, which is psychological safety. And, you know, the it's been made very popular by uh, Amy Edmondson's work. And yes. what we found was without psychological safety, the other five actions don't really matter. You know, one of them is, you, you know, identifying the strengths of the individual members of the team. Another is uh, spending time and cultivating a learning group mindset like you are, you know, learning from each other and having connection points of learning. Another whole action is around communication. All of these we know. What what was interesting is that they really don't matter if you don't have the psychological safety to say what you really think uh, without feeling like you're going to be penalized either implicitly or explicitly. And so the chapter goes through the six actions and brings home just how much leadership is a business of people. It's a social construct. It's a relationship. And so is healthy team leadership. It's a relationship. It's just plurality, right? It's so I need to, I, I, my bias towards action. And so when it comes to team leadership, uh, sometimes on mass, I tend to want to get the job done. I need to slow it down and see the human beings just like I would one-on-one. Right. So anyway, I, I love it because it's a distillation. It's a chapter of distillation. So, uh, I hope folks enjoy it. Yeah, I think they will. And so, um, I had to read, uh, Amy's book, when I got my master's degree, it's just called teaming, right? Do I have my story straight? And um, what a great read, first of all. So now you have three books in the cart, everybody. Don't forget you have three books in the cart. Warren, Warren Bennis, Amy Edmondson, and then of course this book, Arrive and Thrive. You're going to have those in the cart. Get them on the bedside table. Let's go, people. All right. So psychological safety. Can you tell us a little bit about how we create that? Did you guys see some evidence in your research that said, here are the things you need to do? We didn't do original research on psycholo- on psychological safety. Okay. However, it does connect to the seventh and final practice of the book, which is uh, creating a culture of uh, inclusion. And, you know, it goes back to where we started, Nicole, about your, <laughs> your, your question of me about what is inclusion and what's, what's my definition of leadership. And, yeah. you know, I think a, a, a check on psychological safety is are the people around me in my team, in my environment, in my workplace, are they bringing their unique selves to work? Do, does, it, does it feel like they're 
bringing themselves? And are they being accepted for who they are? Are they able to um, connect with others in a way that honors their value? Um, that, that's a little bit of the recipe of what it means to uh, create inclusion as well. But uh, I was inspired and have been inspired. I don't know if you saw this, that Google did a, uh, a study a while back called Project Aristotle. And Project Aristotle was, uh, we referenced this in the book, was a study about why some teams were high performing at Google and some teams weren't. And what they thought they'd see is all sorts of predictive, you know, uh, less soft uh, realities, like maybe business decisions were made more quickly or problem solving was tackled in a particular way. And it turns out that uh, what they found was there was, uh, there was safety. So, and in this particular instance, it was Team members were able to disagree with each other and be respectful at the same time. There was not fear. People could be vulnerable. Uh, you know, they could sort of really put out there what was possible and feel like it was going to be okay um, to try new things on and take risks. So hopefully that fills in a little bit of color around safety. And, and without it, we can't have inclusive cultures either. Right, because we're asking people to come in and bring themselves, and and we know the outputs of our work is better when we have more inclusion. But anyway, I just rambled on about that because <laughs> it no, all. I I was taking notes. There was no rambling. It was just like downloading genius. Okay, so everybody go check out Project Aristotle. I'm sure the Google has lots of stuff on it. So Google that up. And um, I love what you said about um, you know it, you know you have psychological safety. So here's the thing is, um, you know, on your team that you're on or the teams that you're on, uh, can you disagree and still be respectful? And is there a, you know, a lack of fear? You don't feel like you're going to be, it's going to be held against you, right? Uh, anything that you say. So um, we have a, a researcher uh, over at U University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Roger Shores. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but there's another book. Oh my gosh, four in the cart, people. All right. So this one is Smarter Leaders, Smarter Teams. But one of the little goodies in his book that I have picked up and put in my pocket is he says, um, you've got to learn to discuss the undiscussables. I just think that's the greatest little line right there. What do you think about Roger's line? Is that what wow. you're saying when you say that's inclusive and you all that? Yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true at work. And it's true in relationships anywhere you are. And it's hard. Oh my gosh, learning how to discuss the undiscussables, it's hard. It makes y'all uncomfortable. And, you know, there's all sorts of risk involved. So learning how to do that skillfully is super important. I just have to feed back to you, Nicole. I, I love how you uh, active listen and recapture the thinking of your guests. Uh, I listened to a couple of your other podcasts and you do this so well. It's so- Oh, well, thank yeah. you. Well, you know, I, I know people, I mean, well, I just know my own listening habits. There's so much information out there. And if you're a, you know, a learner like me, I listen to a bunch of mess all the time and I love it. I can't get enough of it, but I know I'm in and out. Like sometimes I have to rewind or figure out where I was. And so I try to repeat so people don't really miss the things that I believe was just a little bit of genius that was laid down. So um, you've been laying down genius left and right. I think I took, I took four pages of notes. For, for our time together. Um, so I am so grateful to you, Susan Brady, for you coming on the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. But here's what I know. There's one gal out there, one woman who's like, wait, don't let her go. One more nugget from Susan. So do you have one more little nugget of genius that you would kind of like tie a bow on this thing and tell us about? 
that you think would be a goodie that we could stick in our pocket? Well, how about this? I'll 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 end with you the way I, I ended my time on. Uh, I was interviewed by Good Morning America uh, with my last book, and they asked me. I, I you know whenever I'm interviewed, it's like what's the one thing, and I yeah. was. I was I was compelled to say, and I want to say it here now for whatever reason, is you are more powerful than you think. And so much mm-hmm. of what I find is people are waiting to be anointed with either a gift or a skill or the worthiness of promotion or whatever, permission to have the life they want. And what I want to say is like, we get to do that right now. You know, we can decide that it's time to thrive right now now and figure out how to go about manifesting that. So you are more powerful than you think. And I would love um, to keep talking. I'd love it if some of your listeners reached out and joined me on LinkedIn or wherever they choose to follow. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been great to be with you. And so listen, you can find uh, Susan at inclusiveleadership.com backslash team backslash Susan hyphen Brady. That was a mouthful. It'll be in the show notes, everybody. So you can go there. And then on your LinkedIn, we just look for Susan Brady and the Institute for Inclusive Leadership. She'll pop right up, link in with her there. And we're absolutely delighted to have you and uh, look forward to uh, hearing about what like your what would be your sixth book that comes out. Let us know so we can have you come back and uh, we'll do another podcast. You can download some more genius and listen, ladies. Get out there, get busy. You're more powerful than you think. Thank you, Susan Brady. Thanks, Nicole. Ready to build your vibrant culture? Bring Nicole Greer to speak to your leadership team, conference, or organization to help them with her strategies, systems, and smarts to increase clarity, accountability, energy, and results. Your organization will get lit from within. Email Nicole at NicoleGreer.com. And be sure to check out Nicole's TEDx talk at NicoleGreer.com.